Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, of course, lots going on, but today we'll start with the Palestinian issue or um, let's say the return of the Palestinian issue. Over the last four years under the Trump administration especially, uh, the Palestinian issue certainly took a back seat or at least um, the focus on the Palestinians uh, sometimes, you know, to the point where there was no wider Middle East. Um, you know, there were attempts by the uh, uh, Trump administration early on to reach out to the Palestinian Authority, to Mahmoud Abbas, and they were rebuffed to the point where Mahmoud Abbas would not even take his calls. And uh, as you can imagine, this incensed uh, uh, President Trump. Um, but there was this big push, this peace to prosperity, um, which was supposed to be a regional effort, which would uh, bring in other countries, but uh, focus more on the Palestinian economy. There was talk of giving the Palestinian economy billions of shekels to really reboot its uh, economy, to really help uh, bring up its middle class, to really help at so many different levels in the hope that this would be a stage towards uh, returning to the negotiating table, as opposed to just trying to run to the negotiating table, which is uh, pretty much every uh, approach since the Oslo Accords in 1993. And as we know, they've all pretty much failed. Uh, so there was an attempt to do something different. The Palestinians didn't want in. Uh, they prevented even their people from uh, attending, um, you know, some of the rollouts of, uh, of this peace plan. Uh, and basically, the Palestinians understood that they were taking very much a back seat. Uh, what really uh, hurt them even more, hurt their international standing, was the fact that after these uh, four uh, normalization agreements that the Trump administration, you know, uh, midwife, uh, it, uh, over the last few months, the Palestinians were standing on the, uh, the sidelines. The first couple, they screamed about, they said that this was a betrayal. Uh, blah, blah, blah. They tried to go to the Arab League for the first time in a while. The Arab League uh, did not side with them uh, and basically uh, didn't allow them to put in their more extremist rhetoric into some of the Arab League resolutions. And as they understood, uh, as time went on, they understood the way the winds were blowing. And by the time the Moroccan normalization agreement came about, uh, there was complete silence. And, and that wasn't uh, by accident. That was... Uh, very much on purpose, the Palestinians understood that they weren't getting anywhere uh, with, with this uh, strategy of basically trying to uh, fight these agreements. Um, and all they were doing is hurting their bilateral relations with some of these countries and on a multilateral level within the Arab world, much of which has come around to the idea that Israel is not the major problem in the region. Uh, Iran is, uh, and uh, Israel can do much. Uh, they can have warm relations, as we see between the UAE and Israel to a slightly lesser extent, Bahrain, to, well, uh, the jury's out on uh, Morocco-Israel relations because they're, they're still sort of in their infancy. And Sudan you know, is, is a, whole, a whole different matter. Uh, but basically what we've heard from the Biden administration 
uh, certainly over the last few days um, from the Secretary of State, uh, from uh, the uh, new American ambassador to the UN is this refocus on the Palestinians. And this has certainly buoyed the Palestinians. Um, they, it, it is understood that the Biden administration will uh, try and take several steps towards the Palestinians. One is the return of the PLO mission in Washington, uh, which was closed uh, under the Trump administration. Apparently there is some legal problem as to why they may or may not be able to open it because there is a law, if I understand it correctly, that if the Palestinians try and take Israel to the International Criminal Court, uh, then their, uh, their status will be downgraded or removed, uh, which of course we know the Palestinians have done. So that may be a tricky uh, thing to do. Uh, they also said that they'll open up uh, their consulate, uh, an American consulate for the Palestinian Authority in Jerusalem, which also may be a tricky thing to do because it obviously needs uh, Israel's buy-in because at the moment, uh, well, Israel considers Jerusalem, uh, you know, its, so uh, its sovereign capital uh, city. Um, and we'll see, but I, I can't imagine Israel's going to drag its feet over something like that. But what we do see is aid uh, packages being returned to the Palestinians, funding for UNRWA, uh, the refugee agency, which was stopped uh, during the Biden administration. Uh, there's been talk of that uh, returning and it's really buoyed the Palestinians. And we've seen them take some steps to try and, you know, uh, uh, garner a greater reputation. Uh, one of them is, um, <clears throat> talk on reforming their pay for slay, this uh, program where if you murder Israelis, then you get a certain stipend every month or your family does if you died during a suicide attack. Um, and that's been very controversial. Now they're saying that they're going to reform it to make it more means-based. Um, other things they're, they're doing is uh, remarkably after 14 years, they may have their first uh, elections, presidential and parliamentary elections, as we like to say in Israel. <coughs> President Mahmoud Abbas is uh, four years into a 16 year term. Um, he shied away from elections, anything close to elections. And there are many people who think that elections won't happen this time either. Then there's the question of Hamas. Does Hamas involve itself in these elections? Are they allowed to involve themselves in these elections? If we remember from the past, the international community have very strict criteria of how to deal with the, uh, this issue. <coughs> they said that they would allow uh, Excuse me. They would allow them to be interlocutors if they recognized Israel, recognized agreements, uh, stopped uh, the armed struggle, as they call it, <coughs> um, and, and take those steps. That was uh, by the quartet back in the day, I believe 2006. Um, but the question remains for the international community what can be done about that? So the questions remain is exactly how far this is going to be. I talked about this last week. This is certainly not going to be a continuation of the Trump policy, nor is it going to be returned to the Obama policy. So it depends exactly where it sits between that. We do, we are going to see a refocus on the Palestinians. It's not something which occupies uh, Israelis too much. Israel is too focused on Iran. We heard remarkably and to a certain extent unprecedentedly uh, the chief of staff, Kohavi, actually fallen in line with this prime minister, usually the head of the military, <coughs> talks about uh, military matters, doesn't usually get involved in foreign uh, affairs or diplomacy, but he also warned the Americans not to go back to the agreement and even went further and said that we are creating plans to deal with Iran to make sure that they do not have 
nuclear weapons, creating operational plans to go alongside those that already been created. Uh, that caused quite a stir here, and I can imagine that probably caused a stir also in the US. Uh, so those are some of the issues uh, in Israel. Much of the focus over the last week has been on the ultra-Orthodox issue. For those who have been watching the media, they have seen the riots, the burning of a bus, the attempted lynching of a bus driver, um, just the, the effects of the policy of trying to uh, prevent uh, some of the institutions and life in the ultra-Orthodox world from going back to normal, whereas the rest of Israel is, pretty much, is in lockdown. The ultra-Orthodox world, to a certain extent, obviously there are those who are keeping the rules and those who aren't, but many institutions are open. <coughs> Weddings are happening uh, and various other things. So finally, after a lot of outrage, uh, the police have, uh, started to move into some of these areas and uh, some thugs from those communities came out and throw feces at them, throw rocks at them, call them Nazis, all those sort of things. These things are recorded, they're shown in the news. And there's a real debate now for the first time, they really put the focus on the ultra-Orthodox issue from the sidelines. Uh, there's a whole debate, what does this mean? And certain politicians, Victor Liebman, uh, Yale appeared, and others have said, we have to stop this state uh, within a state because, uh, or what other calls the Haredi autonomy. And what they mean by this is that uh, while there seems to be one rule for uh, the rest of the Israeli population, there's a, a different rule for the ultra-Orthodox. Just as an example, uh, uh, new cases of the coronavirus, around 40% of them are from the ultra-Orthodox community, yet only 2% of all fines given out um, are to the ultra-Orthodox community. At the moment, there's a debate in the Knesset, and this is an issue which is uh, really causing a bit of paralysis in the system. There's a big call to double, uh, or even more, uh, the fines that are given out at the moment. For about six months, Prime Minister Netanyahu has been begged uh, to increase the fines uh, for whether you're not keeping to restrictions or you open institutions or schools or whatever. And um, there's been a call to increase them, but this has been uh, fought by his uh, loyal coalition partners, <coughs> the ultra-Orthodox. And it's got to a point where Blue and White have said that we will not extend the lockdown if um, these fines are not at least doubled. The ultra-Orthodox are fighting this. Um, and we'll see who wins out on that. But it's a very important juncture for Israeli politics because the ultra-Orthodox have uh, pushed themselves onto the agenda. It's not where they want to be. Uh, there's a big backlash uh, against them, against their community leaders. And according to a recent poll, uh, around two thirds of the Israeli public uh, hope that the next coalition will be without the ultra-Orthodox parties. I don't think you've ever seen those numbers. You find a majority, uh, not just on the left, uh, the secular left, but even on the traditional and religious right, where there's a majority, I think something like 52% would prefer the ultra-Orthodox out of the coalition, and only 20-something percent would prefer them in. So th these are quite extraordinary numbers, because as we know, Netanyahu's block is very much built on the foundation of the ultra-Orthodox. So this could uh, cause a bit of a problem for him uh, moving forward, um, but these are things that are going to be worked out uh, over the next day. Uh, finally, the coronavirus numbers. We know Israel is still leading the world in percentages of population to be vaccinated. I think we're, we're getting close to a third of the population, but the numbers are not going down. And that's uh, becoming a bit of a source of worry for the medical experts and those who are following these numbers, because each week we're told the numbers will come down because of the vaccines, because of the lockdown, and they're quite simply not. Uh, we've been told next week we hope to see them down. 
but it's causing a little bit of consternation. Uh, there's a lot of talk in Israel about the so-called British mutation, which is certainly spreading, and especially in the ultra-Orthodox community. Um, so that could account for a big part of it, but the fact is that still a very large part of the public is now fully inoculated, uh, vaccinated, and the numbers are not sinking at this point. So uh, we'll see what happens with that next week. Uh, Netanyahu and the uh, medical establishment certainly wants an extension of the lockdown. It's supposed to end, uh, I believe, on Thursday, uh, tomorrow or Friday. Uh, but it's at least intended to be extended at least until Sunday. But that all depends on whether there can be a deal uh, made with blue and white, because as I said, they're holding uh, an extension of the ho uh, lockdown hostage to whether there should be a raise in the uh, fines, because blue and white are saying there's no point in a lockdown if there's a large community which are dis uh, just disobeying it, and they are creating the large numbers. As I said, a uh, community which is only around 10% of the country are actually accounting for 40% of the total new cases every single day. So uh, that's to be worked out. The Arab list uh, seems to be breaking apart. Um, the Islamist part of that uh, has said at this point, they had a meeting, all the different parties and all the other four parties uh, in the joint list have basically said that um, at this point, there's no agreement. Uh, the Islamist party is going to take it to its uh, Sharia Council to decide, but as we know, that's led by Mansour Abbas, uh, the Arab politician that Prime Minister Netanyahu has very much been uh, getting cozy with recently. So that could be also, people are talking about that as a win for Netanyahu. One of, uh, one of his strategies is to break up the uh, joint list uh, to try and get some Arab votes towards uh, the Likud, uh, to raise it up a little bit. It's gone down in the last week after a few weeks of moving up. Much of this is to do with as Netanyahu himself said, you know, his political career is very much tied up into how things go with the coronavirus, how things go with the vaccine. And the last week, especially considering the backlash from the uh, directed at the ultra-Orthodox community, he certainly lost a little bit of his uh, growing momentum. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. All right, thank you so much. Uh, the first question went in is, uh, one of our viewers just received a bulletin that Biden has canceled. Uh, Bloomberg's, Bloomberg is saying, pause, the F-35 sale to the UAE. Is this a sign that the, of the administration's approach to the Middle East? Well, uh, from what I read, and again, this is really in the last few minutes, um, that it is a pause. Um, they're claiming that that's usual for any transitional administration to pause all agreements like this, especially uh, military uh, agreements, uh, and this has got caught up in it. Um, I, I, I don't really have uh, the knowledge to know whether that is normal uh, with the turnover of administrations. Uh, it's certainly something that the, the Democrats were very much against this agreement to sell the UAE, uh, the, F, um, the F-35s, uh, this multi-billion dollar agreement. Uh, was certainly not popular on that side of the aisle. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's a little bit more to this than just a bureaucratic pause just to uh, you know, have a look and realign uh, some of these agreements with their particular ideology and strategy. Um, this would certainly be a great blow uh, for what's going on in the region because this was to a certain extent, whether you agree or not with the sale, was certainly a foundational part of uh, the Abraham Accords, an agreement between UAE and Israel, regardless of 
you know, whether all the three parties said that this wasn't a part of the agreement, it certainly obviously was. Uh, so we'll have to see what exactly happens with that. Um, and I have no more knowledge than, than the person who asked the question, which, which saw this, but uh, as I said, this is something that was very, uh, very uh, sensitive for the Democrats. And uh, when, when the agreement was signed, it was something that was heavily criticized by that side of the aisle. Thank you. And regarding Kohavi's statements about Iran, what discussions did it cause in Israel? Well, there was on, on the on the left, they criticized him. They said he shouldn't have made these statements. It's not his role. He's not a decision maker. He's the person who's supposed to implement the strategy of the policymakers. He's not a diplomat. Uh, and even Benny Gantz, who is ostensibly his boss as defense minister, actually criticized him. He said, you know, talk of red lines is something that happens behind closed doors. It's not something that uh, should be uh, talked about in the public. So that was a, a, even a sort of, you know, a slap uh, to these comments from the person who really is his boss. Um, my assumption would be that this is something that uh, was coordinated with the Prime Minister because he very much towed Prime Minister Netanyahu's line on this. Uh, there is, as I said, that really is the issue which is keeping Israel up at night. It's not the Palestinian issue or many of the other issues. It's what is the Biden administration going to do with the Iran agreement? Is it going to re-enter it? At what level? As Kohabi said, he said, even if there are some minor improvements, it still wouldn't be good enough for us. Um, so it remains to be seen what happens, but uh, it, certainly, it certainly was relatively unprecedented uh, for the IDF chief of staff to make these comments. As I said, they're, they're not, uh, they weren't in opposition to the prime minister, but uh, they were something which obviously the defense minister had a problem with. Understood. And what do you think about Turkey's move on Hamas? Do you expect a normalization in relations between Turkey and Israel? There's been a certain amount of talk about that, um, that Turkey are now looking to get sort of more cozy with Israel. But uh, in Israel, there's certainly, um, while the, the trade has pretty much continued, the diplomatic relations just got worse and worse. I mean, uh, uh, Erdogan, the Turkish leader hasn't missed too many opportunities to attack Israel. And we're not talking about usual diplomatic speech. We're talking about, you know, talking about Jerusalem is not your capital. You're taking over our Muslim land. I mean, the sort of rhetoric is really over above and beyond. Um, Israel is a very forgiving nation, as we've seen, you know, a lot of countries have, can talk about Israel in certain ways and Israel will, you know, sort of turn the other cheek as it were. Uh, but Turkey has been going on for a while. Uh, and I don't think it'll be so easy. And also Israel will, will look into this and see, you know, what, what are its interests here? Because it certainly isn't as reliant on Turkey as it once was uh, in the region. It's got a lot of new friends. And I think Turkey is beginning to understand that. Um, so it remains to be seen exactly uh, what the response will be from Israel, but I don't uh, see it jumping straight back to uh, former relations. Mm. Thank you. And along those lines, uh, do you see a slowdown in the Abraham Accords due to the new U US administration views and will it derail other countries from joining? Well, we heard the Secretary of State uh, Blinken uh, uh, spoke, this was the highest level contact with, uh, with, uh, between Israel and the new administration, spoke with his counterpart, Foreign, uh, Foreign Minister uh, Ashkenazi. And one of the points in the sort of media rollout, the press release was that, uh, you know, continuation of these ties, these growing ties. But I certainly don't think that will be a focus. Um, 
we saw with every single agreement uh, that happened, there was some sort of trade-off. The Americans were expected, not expected, but they put in something, whether it was the F-35 deals, whether it was recognition of the Western Sahara with Morocco, whether it was taking Sudan leaders off the terrorist uh, watch list. Um, I think these, these are the sort of steps that will be much harder for uh, the Biden administration. Um, so I don't think um, there's going to be a great rush. Maybe something was already in the works. There was talk of uh, Oman, there was talk of Indonesia and a few others. Uh, but I think the, the, the pedal will certainly be lifted a little bit on this. Uh, if there's an opportunity, I'm sure the Biden administration, Secretary of State Lincoln and others will certainly look for that opportunity, but I don't think they'll go all in like the Trump administration. And I think uh, everyone in the region is just waiting to see. I mean, a lot will depend. As I said, everything uh, just goes back to Tehran. Uh, I think a lot will depend on how the Biden administration approaches Iran. That's really the key to so much of what's going on, whether it's the Palestinian issue, whether it's the Abraham Accords, even Turkey, you know, Hamas, everything. Everything is connected, I would argue, uh, to a greater or lesser extent to uh, what the Biden administration's uh, uh, direction is going to be towards Iran. Thank you. Moving on to COVID, uh, did the Orthodox agree to be vaccinated? Well, the ultra-Orthodox, um, yes, but not in the same numbers. I mean, you know, to say there's the Orthodox, you know, that's a whole community. Uh, the major rabbis have come out and said that they should. Um, there is a certain level of skepticism in that community, a certain level of conspiracy theories uh, is predominant uh, in that community. So they're not getting, also in the Arab community, uh, I'm not sure if it's the same reasons, uh, but they're also a little bit slower. Uh, you know, the numbers, the percentages are not as high in those areas. Um, but I don't think uh, on a communal level, you know, the, the big rabbis, which are the, the rabbis that are listened to on the whole have come out and said that uh, you should get a vaccination. So. Um, many are, but as I said, not in uh, the same sort of numbers as uh, the general population. Thank you. And you mentioned that only 2% of the fines are going to the ultra-Orthodox for, for breaking the, the restrictions. Uh, what do you think is causing that? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, there's, there's a couple of things. First of all, there's the political will. There isn't the political will. Don't forget the the head of the police is the Minister of uh, Internal Security, which is a member of the Likud, which is very much uh, Amir Ohana, who's very much, you know, uh, a Netanyahu man, very, very close to Netanyahu. And as I said, it's, it, it, there's a political dimension to this, that uh, Likud needs the ultra-Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox threaten that if, uh, if there's too much uh, pressure put on these communities, then it'll be uh, a problem for Netanyahu. There's been a sort of a lot of statements that, you know, we could go with other people, we're not beholden to him, we're not happy with him, et cetera, et cetera. The other level is just simple deterrence. You know, when you go, in, when police go into these communities, they have sometimes even little kids who go, you know, walk up to them, throw stones, throw feces, throw, you know, diapers at them, call them Nazis. I mean, you know, how, how they show the level of restraint that they do, I, I don't know, but, you know, do police want to go into these areas? I mean, there was talk of uh, police actually staying out these areas, even when there were fires, because they know if they go into these areas, they could be attacked. I mean, policemen have been attacked. There was an extraordinary scene last week where a policeman actually uh, took out his firearm and shot in the air because he believed that his life was in danger. Uh, so there is a certain level of deterrence being created around these communities. 
Um, but a big part of it is simply uh, there's no desire from the highest uh, political levels to have a fight with the ultra-Orthodox. And there's a sort of wink and a nod that, you know, don't make too much of it and try and hide it as much as possible, but we will certainly not be sending the police in to shut these uh, schools down. I mean, the, the you know, the, the percentages of schools, you know, the, the rest of the country, there is no schools, nothing, no exceptions, that's it. Uh, just uh, special education, but in the ultra-Orthodox communities, basically, the, it's, it's almost life as normal. You know, they're being bussed in, having full days, and, you know, uh, they show on the news people calling in the police, you know, even from within the ultra-Orthodox community, they're calling the police and say, please shut the school down. And they show them days and days and nothing happens. So there's obviously, a, you know, certain reasons behind it. And I think those are two of the most prominent. Thank you. Um, do you have any idea what needs to happen for tourists to be allowed back in to visit Israel, especially from the US? I know the airports are shut down right now, but we're all hopeful. <laughs> right, now that's, that is unprecedented. Also, the, the, the airports are completely shut down. There is no uh, traveling in or out, Israelis or non-Israelis only for real emergencies. Um, I mean, you know, Netanyahu has been talking about, you know, back to life uh, by the end of March, April. End of March is a very important date for Netanyahu because that's the elections. You know, we're talking about, uh, I, I think it was the 23rd. I think we're something like 57 days away from the elections. So for Netanyahu, certainly, it'd be very important for him uh, if we get back to some level of uh, normality. I mean, we were supposed to, you know, end the lockdown this week, at the end of this week, early next week, we were talking about opening up shops, especially for those who have had their second injection. Um, I had my second one today, my second vaccine. Uh, in a week after you, you then get what's called a green passport, which uh, is supposed to then allow you to attend cultural sporting events, be able to travel, uh, be able to, you know, you, you, you can't be sent into isolation for any contact with anyone who has a coronavirus and all these other things. Uh, quite simply, at the moment, it's not, you know, it's, it's impossible to get them. The, the system has crashed. And anyway, we're, in, we're still in lockdown. Uh, there is a feeling by the summer uh, that we could be, again, depending on the numbers, that we could be largely out of it. Netanyahu, again, is very proud to say that he believes we'll be the first country in the world out of it. Uh, and already Israel is selling itself as a holiday destination free of coronavirus for the summer. I saw that being put out by the Ministry of Tourism. So there is optimism by the summer that Israel will be open to tourists, uh, but like everything else, it all depends on the numbers. I understand. And when we first started speaking about this, when we started our webinars, the, the mortality rate was fairly low. Is that still the case, even with the new mutation? Israel, Israel is around halfway in percentages uh, in the world. I mean, you know, the US is at the top, I believe. Uh, you see UK now, it's just past 100,000. Uh, Israel is, a, uh, I believe it's four and a half thousand. I mean, this month has been the most deadly. We've already had a thousand people die, which is the highest of any uh, month since the beginning of the coronavirus. So the numbers are going up, um, but we're about halfway in the world from the last uh, uh, graph that I saw, because there are some countries which are dealing with it very well, uh, other countries very badly. Um, and our percentage is around uh, middle of middle of the world, but uh, it's certainly a worry that the numbers don't seem to be dipping, even though we are, uh, you know, undertaking this extraordinary uh, vaccine program. Um, but maybe we're just a couple of weeks uh, behind it. Maybe in the next couple of weeks, these numbers will start uh, 
you know, dipping a little bit. We can only hope. Uh, so going back to Iran real quick as we finish up our webinar here, are there any attempts by Israeli officials to have private discussions with Iranian counterparts to come to some peaceful agreements? No, <laughs> in, in one word, I, I've never, you know, ever since uh, pretty much uh, the Iranian revolution, you know, Israel and Iran used to have very good and close relations uh, before 1979. Um, there could be some back channels every now and again uh, through third mediating countries, but certainly nothing close to negotiations or peaceful or, or, or peace uh, discussions, anything like that. Now, it, Iran will be the last country to come uh, to the table with Israel. Uh, you know, according to Iran, Israel is the little devil to America's big devil. Uh, we are the sworn enemy. We are, according to the highest levels uh, in Iran, we should be wiped off the map. So I'm not sure how you sit down and negotiate anything with, uh, with people with that sort of rhetoric. Understood. And uh, how do you think the Biden administration will be handling Iran now that we have a little more information than prior weeks? Um, we don't have much. Uh, it's so early days. Uh, they're certainly interested in uh, going back uh, to some sort of negotiation, some sort of talks. There has been uh, definite outreach. Um, What's interesting in the last couple of days is the Europeans are saying that the Americans should not come back in until Iran has itself gone back into the agreement. Because as we've seen over the last few weeks, Iran has uh, breached the agreement in many very dangerous ways. So the fact that the Europeans are now sort of leading on this is, is possibly and probably very much coordinated with the Americans, because uh, I don't think the Europeans would be telling the Americans what to do unless it was coordinated. So I can see that you know that there's a bit of uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, gamesmanship here, uh, you know, brinkmanship. Who's going to flinch first? Are uh, the Iranians are saying no first? Uh, we you know we go back to the agreement and then we can talk about uh, uh, you know us stopping some of the enrichment and, and all the other uh, steps that we've taken that are in breach of their JCPOA. Uh, but we'll see who flinches first. Um, certainly uh, the Biden campaign talked about uh, uh, re-engaging with Iran. Uh, it was something, you know, uh, the Trump administration was very hard on Iran. Um, so it, it remains to be seen. From, from what we're hearing, Iran doesn't know quite yet what to make of the Biden administration. It's probably the bottom line is it's a little bit too early. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some very tentative early talks behind the scenes, maybe through third parties or whatever. But I think this European uh, call uh, that the Americans should not enter until Iran has, uh, you know, rolled back its breaches of the agreement, I think is very telling where we are at this moment. So we'll have to see in the coming days and weeks exactly what that means for American engagement with Iran. All right. Thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Ashley, thank you again for taking time thank to update us. Uh, for our viewers, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Sonar Choptai on Erdogan, Reckless or Savvy? Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.